about that. We're going to get right to it this morning and uh, go to Romans chapter 8 on your device or in your Bible. Um, Paul's going to take us way up high in the air today and get the bird's eye view, the big picture. This is deep stuff. It's heavy stuff. Are you ready for this? I I hope that you are. Um, We're in this awesome series in Romans 8 called If God is for Us. So let me read uh, our passage for today, and you can follow along. You can also take the uh, study guide out of your worship folder so you can track with me this morning. Romans 8, beginning in verse 16, Paul wrote this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Whoa, there's a lot there. What the great apostle aims to do in this section is to build something underneath us, and I want to cooperate with him. He He intends to construct something solid underneath our lives so that when the ground is shaking around us, as it will, we won't collapse in a heap of despair and doubt, but we'll instead remain on our feet, planted firm, standing with our faith in the goodness of God intact. Here's some trivia for you. You'll appreciate this. Holding you up today, holding up this building are 20 what are known as caissons, big, huge, massive, round columns of concrete, six feet in diameter. They were formed when concrete was poured down into deep shafts into the ground, 20 feet deep, resting on solid rock. Without those caissons beneath us, this room that we're in right now might teeter and topple and slide down into the creek down here because... Unbeknownst to us, when we purchased this land 30 years ago, there's a big peat bog underneath this building. A lake was here at some point in time, and that made the earth not suitable to build on. And so we had to build this, we had to pay $100,000, I think it was, to build this subsurface structure to hold everything up. Aren't you glad for that today? We're not sliding away. Well, that's a metaphor, I think. Because the promises of God that Paul presents to us in this section of Romans chapter 8 were meant to be like that for our lives. Deep, solid, weight-bearing supports to hold us up. He knew that the children of God would need this because we will all of us, all of us in our lives, encounter circumstances that will shake us to our core. Have you experienced that yet? If not, you will. And God wants us to remain upright and steady, not buckling under that weight, under that pressure, and certainly not sliding away from Him. 
So let me show you how this idea fits in with the primary thought that Paul is developing here in Romans chapter 8. The theme of the chapter is found in verse 31 where it says, If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's a wonderful thought. It's an encouraging, soul-fueling thought, isn't it? To know that if we belong to God, if we belong to Him, then He is no longer against us as our judge, but He is for us as our Father. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. God is for His people. And, and as we've said, God didn't just say this, He didn't just declare it, but He's backed it up. He's proved it. In Romans chapter 8, what Paul is doing is laying out the proof, the evidence that God is for us. What we've seen so far is this. Verse 1 tells us he's removed our guilt. Praise God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2 tells us that he set us free from slavery to sin. Thank God for that. And in verse 3, it says that God demonstrated that he is for us by judging his son, Jesus, in our place. He judged him so that he could pour out mercy on us. And that's the good news, isn't it? Verse 4 tells us that he has given us righteousness, legal righteousness, gifted to all who believe in Christ. Verses 5 through 14 let us know that, that God has given us his Holy Spirit, this wonderful gift, this person who comes to indwell us and, and lead us. And we've noted a number of ways that the Spirit comes to lead our lives. And then in verses 15 and 16, he tells us that he has adopted his children into his family. He made us the children of God. Well, now here in verses 17 through 25, Paul gives us another evidence that God is for us. And he takes some time to develop this next thought in detail because he knew something. Paul knew that there would be people who would say this, okay, then if God is really for me and he's done all these wonderful things to prove it, then certainly he will shield me from all trouble in my life. I mean, Paul just said, we're the king's kids, right? And children of the king have a privileged status. Royalty deserves to have a comfortable life. So certainly I would expect that my daddy in heaven, the king, will make my life pretty easy down here on the earth and then give me heaven as kind of the frosting on the cake. Now that thinking has been around for a long, long time. And there's a, a modern version of it that's sometimes referred to as the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Turn on your television any time of the day or night, and you will find an overabundance of prosperity preachers telling you that if you're God's child, that he wants you to have a life blessed with no pain. And if you'll just exercise enough faith and say the right, th right things and speak positive confessions and visualize your success, I'll get better, honey. I promise you, I'll get better. <laughs> They're telling us that if, if, if you do these things, then you can avoid trouble and heartache and disease and lack, and you can achieve your destiny of health and abundance, and you can have your best life now. Whenever I hear those guys, and they're hard for me to watch, to be honest with you, I always want to ask them this. Have you ever read Paul or James or Peter or John or Jesus? And what do you say about all of the Christian martyrs down through the centuries? Did they just not have enough faith to get God to rescue them? 
As a pastor, I urge you to be very wary of preachers who talk like that. I urge you to be wary of preachers who have an underdeveloped theology of suffering, or worse yet, a non-existent theology of suffering. And Paul begins this section of Romans 8 by undercutting that whole line of thinking. He says this, verse 16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Sounds good so far, right? King's kids. And if children, then heirs, yeah, I like that, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer. <laughs> yeah, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider, Paul wrote, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So here's the truth. I need you to get this now. God demonstrates that he is for us, for his people, not by shielding us from all suffering in this life, but instead by giving us promises which provide solid hope in the midst of our suffering that an exceedingly better future awaits us. You've got to get way up high now to see this. God intends for his promises to be like caissons in our lives, firm supports underneath us that hold up our hope, keep us from collapsing when cancer does come, when we get blindsided by a pink slip on our desk, when a child does walk away from the faith or from the family, when you get devastating news. Our God wants to strengthen us to endure these sufferings so that we will be more like his own son who endured unbelievable suffering and then was glorified. Suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. Suffering now, glory then. That's a pattern that's all throughout the Bible, not only for God's son, but for God's people. And so what are these rock-solid promises that you can rest on even through tears when a loved one is dying, or when your coworkers are ridiculing you, or when you're losing your hearing or your sight? Paul lays out seven of them. Here's the first one. Number one, God promises that his children will receive an unfading eternal inheritance that they will get to enjoy forever. Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Now Peter, the fisherman, the redeemed fisherman, wrote about this spiritual inheritance in his letter. Listen, 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled, kept or reserved in heaven for you. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's when you'll receive your inheritance, in the last time. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You're going to receive an inheritance. Now, some of you have received an earthly inheritance. That's a blessing, isn't it? Or it can be a blessing. There's some complications that can come sometimes from greedy siblings or ex-spouses 
It can get kind of messy, but I'm telling you that your heavenly inheritance will come to you minus all of those entanglements. Praise God for that. So both Paul and Peter are saying this, when this life gets hard, as it will, remind yourself that since you're a child of God, a day is coming when you will receive an immeasurably valuable inheritance. It can never be taken away, and you'll get to enjoy it forever. And the idea is you'll enjoy it more and more and more and more and more during forever. It's from your daddy. It's reserved in heaven for you, and it will be spectacular. Begs the question, what is it? (laughs) What is our heavenly inheritance? Well, I don't have time to go into it. Sorry. Um, I'm going to post something online this week on our website, an article that describes in detail from the biblical perspective what our inheritance is comprised of. For now, suffice it to say this, it's going to be so good, so enriching, so enjoyable, so satisfying that having it all, taking possession of it, will make all of the accumulated burdens that weighed you down in this life seem like It will be that glorious. That's what verse 18 says, and that leads us to our second promise to build our hope on. Paul wrote, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So number two, promise number two, God promises us future glory that far outweighs present suffering it's not worth comparing. There's no comparison. No comparison. Say that with me. No comparison. So if your future self could come back and talk to your present self, do you know what you would say to you? It's probably something like this. Why are you all in a tizzy over that? I know it seems like a crushing weight to you now, but I'm telling you, you, Compared to what God has in store for you later, there is no comparison. Take it from me. I mean you, or whatever. That's what your future self would say to you. There's no comparison. Elsewhere, Paul wrote this, for this light momentary affliction, that's his description of this life, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There's no comparison. What your experience will be then compared to the worst of it now, no comparison at all. Now look at the little phrase, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, what are those? Some would say, well, that refers to being persecuted, the sufferings that come from being persecuted for Jesus. And certainly it includes that, and those are coming, by the way. Those are coming. But the context implies that this phrase refers to all the different hardships that believers experience this side of eternity. All the suffering that comes as a result of living in a sin-cursed world, in sin-cursed bodies. Everything from natural disasters like earthquakes and tsunamis to Alzheimer's to all sicknesses to conflict in your family to struggling with temptation to the inability to find a job to getting your reputation all soiled up on Facebook. All of those and more comprise the sufferings of this present time. 
compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us one day, these are nothing, not because they are so insignificant to us now, but because they will seem that way to us then. And so Paul is saying that in addition to receiving our inheritance, there's going to be this glory that's going to be revealed, and notice it says, to us. That means we'll see it. It's going to be a glory revealed to us. We'll, We'll see it. And seeing it will make everything we went through in this life seem like nothing. And that's the third promise. Number three, God promises that after this time of suffering, we will see beauty and greatness that will satisfy our hearts forever. I believe that all human beings are on a quest to see awesomeness. John Piper wrote this, Seeing beauty and greatness is one of the passionate desires and deep longings of the human heart built into us by God. We get immense pleasure from seeing beauty and greatness in movies, in museums, at world-class sporting events, art galleries, concerts, the Grand Canyon, the Rockies, at the ocean, looking at sunrises, meteor showers, Seeing beauty and greatness is a huge part of our joy in life. But all of these earthly things are images, mere reflections, pointers to a greater beauty and a greater greatness. They all point to the glory of God, and seeing that will be the end of our quest for beauty and greatness. That's kind of deep, huh? I do believe that's why Jesus prayed for us the way he did in John 17, that great high priestly prayer when he said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, that's us, may be with me where I am to see my glory. That was the greatest thing Jesus could pray for us. Seeing Jesus in his glory was the best gift that Jesus could pray that we would receive after going through suffering in this life. To see his glory? I think that old chorus got it right. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Are you looking forward to that? your heart yearn for that to see Jesus friends it doesn't get much better than that I'm telling you when you see Jesus in all of his glory all of your fears will melt away all of your sorrows will be erased your lifelong quest to have the ultimate experience will be standing right in front of you The very embodiment of beauty and greatness will be right there and your soul for the first time ever will be truly satisfied seeing Jesus. That's our hope. That's the picture you need to hold steady in your mind. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Then there's a fourth promise to gird up your soul in dark times. And this one is very intriguing to me. It's deep. Stay with me. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing 
for the revealing of the sons of God. What does that mean? Number four, God promises that his children will be revealed with a much-anticipated glory of their own. Apparently, not only will you see Jesus in his glory, but you will have some glory of your own. You will be awesome. You know what that tells me? It means that you are not yet all that you are going to be one day. Because you don't look that glorious today. And neither do I, frankly. <laughs> I mean, we look pretty much like everyone else, even though we're children of God. We get hungry, we get sick, we die, just like those who aren't in Christ. Because we have the Spirit in us, we do make progress in killing sin, right? But for the most part, as far as how we look, we look like everyone else for now. But Jesus said this in Matthew 13, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. I think he was referring back to what Daniel wrote in Daniel 12, where he says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Look, we know that God is exceedingly glorious, but sometimes we forget that he promises to let us share in his glory one day. In fact, some scholars believe that the future glorifying of our bodies will be essential if we are to have even the capacity to see Jesus in his glory without being incinerated. You'll need new eyes and new capacities for that. Certainly will require glorified bodies and minds to fully apprehend and enjoy our inheritance without idolizing it, to worship the giver and not just his gifts. I think it was C.S. Lewis who wrote this, that you and I will appear so glorious to each other on that day that we would be tempted to worship one another were it not for the fact that our sanctification will be completed. That's a wild thought. Mull that over for a while. But for the present, that's on that day, for the present, the children of God look like everyone else and suffer like everyone else. In some respects, even more so. We have battles that non-believers don't have. But we can endure with patience because we know that God has promised a day when we will be revealed for who we really are. And it will become obvious to everyone what our true identity is. Now look at verse 19 again. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This is very interesting. We don't expect Paul to go where he goes here. He surprises us. In fact, I think it's a dual surprise. First, he connects your suffering, your suffering, to some kind of global cosmic suffering that's going on in creation. And then he seems to say it backwards. We would expect Paul to say that it's we who are waiting and longing for the creation to be restored, but Paul doesn't say that. He turns it around. So we better go to verse 20 for help. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, those are important words, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Say what? 
we need to follow Paul's point here. It's for our hope. It's for our hope. We've got to get this. So it says, the creation was subjected to futility. When did that happen? In the garden, right? The fall of man in the garden. Creation was cursed with futility because of man's sin. Then it says creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. That means that creation did not ask to be cursed. Mountains and valleys and tectonic plates did not call in and say, curse us, please, so that we can wreak havoc on the human race. Animals did not say, curse us, so that we'll become predators. And humans did not request that their bodies start to break down and decay and eventually die. Someone did this to creation. That's what it says, because of him who subjected it. And who was that? Was it Adam? Was it Satan? Or was it God? The next two works, words clue us in, because of him who subjected it in hope. Adam didn't do that. Satan has no hope. It was God. It could only be God. Who cursed creation? Was it not God? And so our fifth reason for having hope in our pain is this, number five, God promises, follow this now, that his hope is tied up in our hope. I told you this was going deep. If you ask, why did God curse the world after the sin of Adam and Eve? There are several layers of answers to that question. But the one that Paul brings up here to support his point here is this. God cursed creation with futility in hope of something. What? That one day he would set all of creation free from its bondage to corruption. And when will that happen? After he first glorifies all of his kids. So get this. His hope for cosmic global transformation is tied to our hope of personal transformation. Creation will only be free when you're free. That's why it's waiting with eager anticipation for the revealing of the children of God. If you are not glorified, creation won't be either according to God's decree. It's guaranteed. I never thought of earthquakes being one of creation's ways of crying out for me to be glorified. But maybe I should, because that's what it says. This is astounding. Truly astounding. Promise number six, God promises that the groans of creation are not the pangs of death, but the labor pains of childbirth. Verse 22 for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, if you're in a hospital and you hear a woman shrieking out in pain, how you feel about that depends on whether that shriek is coming from the maternity ward or the oncology unit, the cancer ward, right? In our experience, some pain leads to death, and some pain brings forth life. What verse 22 is telling us is that for the children of God, all the hardships that we see in and around us in this life are ultimately leading to life. They are birth pangs, labor pains, anticipating the emergence of new life. And I think Paul got that message from Jesus. 
who once said this, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. And these are but the beginning of the birth pains. One man wrote this, all the groanings of this world are really the birth pangs of the kingdom of God. And we know this in our spirits, don't we? Things are not as they should be. Things in our world are not as they should be. And they're not as they will be. History is headed somewhere. And all creation longs to be brought into this new era of the full manifestation of the kingdom of God. New era of life and restoration and recreation. And God promises that it's going to happen someday. For now, creation continues to groan. And notice this, creation groans, but in the next verse, Paul says, we groan, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, yes, even the children of God who have the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So number seven, God promises that our bodies will one day be redeemed and we will finally cease from all of our groaning. So when I read this passage, I'm thinking there's a whole lot of groaning going on. Creation's groaning under the curse. Here it says we groan as we live in that cursed creation, incarcerated in bodies that are subject to decay and death. And I know this is true. I know some of you feel that futility in your life, that sense of frustration and maybe even sorrow. This week we got an email from a guy in our church and he's just pouring out his heart, you know, and just he's lost his wife last August. He's utterly heartbroken. Even now, months later, he's heartbroken. If that weren't enough, he's been plagued with physical ailments and he can't work and In this email, he just kind of poured out all of his grief and sorrow and anguish and emptiness and frustration and sadness. And he said, I'm devastated. I'm devastated. And I long for the day, I ache for the day when I will see Jesus and I'll be reunited with my my loved one in heaven. Some of you feel some of that, even these days. Maybe you've had a recent loss or maybe a, a dream that you've had has died, just gone. Maybe there's a source of constant frustration in your life that's continually agitating you. Maybe the pressures of this world are bearing down on you and you feel kind of unsteady, truth be told, like, like you might buckle. Maybe you're just weary of the rat race and long to go home and be with Jesus. Maybe you're tired of the constant barrage from our world of empty messages and enticements to sin coming at you day after day after day, and you're just wearying of it. I understand that. I've I've felt that way too. I really have. And along comes Paul, the great apostle, in Romans 8, who basically looks at the children of God and he says, friends, take hope. Take hope. Do not despair. If you're a believer in Christ, you have the Spirit within you, as Paul says here. He calls him the first fruits. That's an agricultural term, and it means that, that this is the first installment. The Spirit is the first installment 
And there's many, many, many more blessings yet to come. Guaranteed and secured by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Blessings that we just talked about. Your inheritance and your new body and seeing Jesus and eternal joy in God and many, many more. The Spirit was not sent to protect you and shield you from experiencing any sorrow or pain in in this life. You know that, right? But instead to sustain you in the midst of it by praying for you, by strengthening you, and by reminding you that God's promises are guaranteed and secured by the shed blood of His Son. If you've trusted in that sacrifice, then your day is coming. And all of creation is longing for it to get here. Your adoption, it's a legal fact. The papers are all signed. All that remains is for your new older brother to come and get you and take you back to the Father's house. Your new renovated body is on order. It won't be subject to decay or death or dysfunction like your current one is. It will have amazing abilities that you cannot even fathom now. You know, when that day comes, there are a lot of things I'll be anxious to see, but at the top of that list is this. When all of us who are in Christ have our glorified and transformed bodies, I long to see my wife running and leaping and dancing before the Lord. My bride, my girl, who was born with a congenital birth defect, has strapped on a prosthesis every day, won't have to do that anymore. I want to see that. I mean, she's going to have this amazing body. She's going to be flying around to all her meetings that she wants to go to all the time, having a great time, totally unencumbered by this body that has plagued her in this life, but that God has used to make her the person that she is. I will be so happy for her. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Amen? Future transformation, glorification of us, our friends, our family members, and of everything. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? It's here. It's in front of you. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And the word literally means patient, steadfast endurance. Solid hope, deep down caissons of truth to build your hope on. All that God has promised will come to pass. It will. So I urge you today, friends, wait for it with patient endurance. I know that there are a number of you who would say, Steve, I need hope right now for what I'm going through. I need endurance. I got to be honest with you. The last two months for me, the last two months have been some of the hardest months of my life. You ever feel like piled on? You know, it's like there's challenges, you know, personal thing, and family, and financial, and church, and personal things again, and things like, it's just like, and there were times in the last two months where I thought I might buckle, honestly, and slide away. You know, one reason every one of you needs a church family, many reasons, but one reason is that, so that when that season comes your way, there are people in your life 
who come alongside you and listen to you and love you and support you and pray for you and remind you of these truths and speak truth to you while the enemy is trying to deceive you and turn your heart away from the Lord and turn you to despair and discouragement and disheartenment. But you've got friends around you who are saying, no, 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 God is for you. God has made some wonderful promises for you to build your life on. Yes, this life gets hard at times. Yes, the evil one attacks us at times. Yes, our own flesh lets us down at times. But there is a God in heaven who has made rock-solid promises and given us hope for the future. And those promises are guaranteed by the blood of his son. That's one reason why you need a church home. And so as we finish today, I want to do something a little bit different. We didn't have a formal official Brothers Keeper prayer time earlier. Did you notice that? But I know there's many of you who are like me, and so I'm going to ask you to stand right now. And if, if you're like me and if you're feeling, I need hope and endurance in the midst of what I'm facing right now, I want you to raise your hands high. In the last service, there's like 50 people or more maybe. I want you to raise them high. Say, I need that from my church family, from the Spirit through my church family. And the rest of you whose hands aren't raised, I want you to make a beeline right now for those whose hands are raised and pray for them. Pray this kind of stuff for them. Pray that they'll have God's perspective, God's perspective on their trials and tribulations. That They'll be given hope to endure in the midst of them and cling to Christ. My hand's raised. Anybody else? We'll have some prayer partners also here to pray with you, especially if you're feeling attacked by the evil one, come and be prayed for. I'm going to get prayed for. Let's spend these next few moments before the Lord.